Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great ESPN podcast. The Hoop Collective with Brian Winhurst focuses on life in and around the NBA Finals. Twice a week, Brian is joined by ESPN NBA insiders, including Tim McMahon and Tim Bontemps every Friday. And during the NBA Finals, check out post-game podcasts with Brian and a combination of Zach Lowe and Kendrick Perkins. That's The Hoop Collective. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also available on YouTube. Also, ESPN's Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents the greatest mixtape ever. The story of how a series of streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place in the culture, defined the lives of the players who starred in them, and changed the game itself forever. Stream on ESPN+. And listen to the companion 30 for 30 podcast, A Streetball Mixtape, exploring the essence of streetball through a collection of legendary stories. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bobani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, we're going to get into The Right Time Book Club, talking about King of the World by David Remnick. Howard Bryant of Metal Arc Media and ESPN will join us for that. But first... All right, so I want to be very clear here that I am not arrogant enough to believe that Steph Curry sit around thinking about me. I don't think Steph Curry does that, right? But I do know that Steph is one of those guys that hears everything. And I know this because somebody who's been on this show has gone to talk to Steph and interview him and had Steph say to him, not bad for a system player, huh? I'm just saying, my man be paying attention. And all I'm trying to say is anything that I have ever had any measure of skepticism about Steph Curry for in the course of the last two seasons, he has taken that skepticism and wiped his ass with it right in front of me and the whole world, right? Just I don't know if he stayed squatting or he stood up when he did it, but he just wiped it, held it up to the camera and said, you see that? You see what Bomani said? That's what he does. Because one question I'd had, and I really still don't think that these were unfair things to question, was Steph the dude to just be like, all right, boys, on my back, we about to do this today. Not that there were not games or that he was like necessarily incapable of such a thing. And maybe some of it I acknowledge is my bias against dudes who just shoot from way far all the time, right? Like it's hard for me to believe that you can go on some like willpower. And just be like, I'm going to do this because I feel like it. Like I made a comparison between Steph and Jimmy Butler. And the point that I was really trying to make about it with Jimmy is Jimmy's 6'8 and strong as hell, right? Like if the call is I'm just going to get way close and there's nothing that you can do about it, then yeah, I'm looking at a guy like that over a guy like Steph. Like my mind just generally doesn't think of the long range assassin as the dude that's saying, all right, boys, get on my back. Because that's just not how I think about saying get on my back. Hey, man. I think it was in the second quarter of game four. I can't remember exactly when, but I know it was in the first half. Man, Steph made some bucket and looked at the crowd and did the flex, like the in front of his, you know, with the flex in the chest and you see the shoulders in front. And I was like, oh, it's that kind of day for Steph Curry today, isn't it? 
and it was. It was look around, and I can't trust none of these dudes. Like, Clay is making shots, and that's a good thing, but that ain't something I can trust. Draymond Green became unplayable by the time the fourth quarter had come around. What else, like, what else was there for the Warriors to do, or what was there for Steph to do, other than just say, all right, I guess I'm going to have to be the one to do all of this. And he did every single bit of it. Like, I think it was Magic Johnson who said that win or lose, Steph Curry is the MVP of these finals. Now, of course, there are potentially three games left. So there's a lot that could change. Somebody else could wind up emerging. But right now, even if they were down 3-1, there's been no question who the best player in the finals has been. Like, I felt like game four, if you wanted to boil it down really to one sentence, and we'll get to more of this a little bit later, but if you really wanted to boil it down to one sentence, it was this. Steph Curry is that dude. Jason Tatum is not. And that's not to say that Jason Tatum can't become that dude, right? Jason Tatum is what, 25 years old? He can become that dude. But right now, you looked at game four, they needed it from him. Needed it. He didn't have it in that way. The Warriors needed it from Steph, and he gave it to him. Even in the first half, he's two for eight from three. He didn't feel like he was two for eight from three because he was missing those shots, but everything else just seemed to be cash money. And so Steph is now, if you had the criticism of particularly the Kevin Durant era, and you just felt like they just had too much, you can't say that right now about the Warriors, right? What they have is Steph. Why are they here right now? Steph. This isn't to me anymore about, well, they've got Steph in this incredible system that weaves all these people together and gets them. No, no, no. That ain't what's going on here. They got Steph. They got these stretches where if you got Draymond Green and Kevon Looney on the floor at the same time where they're playing three on five, you got the thing with Draymond where, hey, let me tell you something. It ain't every day that I can relate to what is going on in an NBA game or I can relate to what, regardless of my disagreements, a future Hall of Famer may be feeling or dealing with. But let me tell you something that I know about. I know how it feels to be useless on offense in a basketball game. I know how it feels when don't nobody actually want to give you the ball. I know how it feels when you get the ball and all you think to yourself is, oh, man, I'm going to mess up, aren't I? I know that feeling. And I saw that with Draymond, right? And he has acknowledged that he's struggling and everything else. And he you know, will find his other ways to contribute. But you could see it every time he got the ball, man. He was shook. And you can't blame him because he's getting the ball 18, 19 feet from the basket. Whoever's guarding him is just like, it's your world. Do whatever it is that you want to do. And he's like, but I don't know what I want to do. And sometimes the call Draymond's making is, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and take this to the basket. He couldn't get close enough to the basket to not be afraid, right? Get there, get there, get there. And he's still always looking to get the ball to somebody else. And I'll never forget, when I was in high school, there's this one dude, we were at practice, and whenever you get the ball, man, you know, like the thing about being, when you're the kids that ain't that good is you are far more likely to do whatever the coach said, or you're just going to do whatever the hell you want. Most of them going to do whatever the coach says. And you recognize you're not that good, so you want to be the unselfish player. And one day, coaches came and looked at this one kid and was like, Danny, Every time you get the ball, everybody knows you're going to pass. You're not going to shoot. You're just going to pass the ball. What are we supposed to do if all you ever going to do is pass the ball? 
Like if everybody knows you're going to pass, then what? Do, how do you think that's going to go? And that's what's happened with Draymond Green at this point. Every time he gets the ball, you know that he's going to pass it. And if he's not going to pass it, you know that he's going to miss. And I can only imagine how humbling that has to be for somebody like him, who's been such a contributor to championships. And don't forget, they didn't win that game in 2016, but that dude scored 37 points in that game seven, right? Like it was a, we got to have it. And he did the stuff that I'm talking about Steph doing in this game. And that feels like eons ago, worlds ago. It's almost to the, at this point, like it never happened. And you wind up with a four-minute stretch at the end of the game where Draymond's not in the game. They out here running offense, defense substitutions for Draymond Green. Like he has become offensively unplayable. And that's what Steph's got to carry. That's what Steph has got to deal with. A diminished version of Klay Thompson, a Draymond Green that can't really get it for you, a Jordan Poole who absolutely showed up in game four, but you can't count on it. You can't trust that that's going to happen. Andrew Wiggins, who has exceeded my expectations in the course of these finals, but Andrew Wiggins, you're in best case scenario with Andrew Wiggins if he's getting what is given to him. He's not going to be able to go get it himself. That's just, you know that's not the player that he is. It's not the player that he's going to be. And what's left is one of the greatest players of all time. And as much as I like bristled at the legacy idea or like, you know, you know, like, why are we talking about this right now? At least wait or whatever, da, da, da. You know, again, I don't we talk about legacies of living people. It always gets a little weird to me. I don't know, like unless Steph just comes out here and completely wets the bed for two or three games that are left in this series. No, this has been it. These four games, at least for me, I can't think of four games in the postseason where Steph has been this good. I don't think that he is nearly the player that he was in 2016 or even 2017, right? Like he was a better player then than he is now. He is getting older, all of those things. But there is always going to be something about, nah, dog, we going to do this. And what we saw there is, again, a thing I just don't think the Warriors get enough credit for, which is these are champs, man. These are battle-tested champions who have been here before and when Steph looked up and was like, hey, we can't lose this one. I'm going to do everything humanly possible to make sure that we don't lose this game. And I'll be damned. They did not lose that game. And on the Warrior side, it was all about him. But uh, on the other side, spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training. Just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. And spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. 
Hey, man, I mentioned it about Jason Tatum earlier, and I've been saying this about Jason Tatum from the beginning. Why are all the shots you take so hard? Right? Like, one of the things that I, my criticisms of Steph about this stuff is, I feel like Steph takes a lot of hard shots, except he takes hard shots that are easy for him, right? Like a 30-footer is a hard shot basically for anybody, but it is easy for him, okay? Jason Tatum is still out here taking all these hard shots and shots that I think are hard for him. Why are you going to the basket and flipping up this left-hand layup, trying to kiss it off the glass instead of just going strong to the rack and make them foul you? You know what I mean? Like, why aren't you doing that? Why are you still shooting all these turnaround 22-footers? Why is this the way that you were going about this? I don't understand because to me, winning in the postseason, especially when you start getting late in these series, it comes down to getting the easiest shots that you can, right? Once you get to that place where everybody knows everybody's plays, everything is a slog, you got to be able to figure out a way to just get to your spot and get an easy shot. And when Jason Tatum gets to his spots, he goes and takes hard shots. And that's a huge, huge, huge problem, right? Because we were talking early in the postseason about is Jason Tatum emerged as a superstar. And it was a fair question to ask, right? You ask all those things about them. We was never going to answer that question in the first round of the playoffs, though. And I honestly don't remember what I said about it at that time. So I might have been on that same kick just with everybody else. But I'm still telling you, and I feel confident saying, you ain't going to prove that in the first round of the playoffs. This is going to be the time you prove it. If there is a time for you to prove it, this is going to be it. And it hasn't happened so far. And I feel from where I'm standing right now, if the Celtics are going to win, it's going to have to happen. Because the thing, Robert Williams being hurt, and he's been hobbling around and figuring it out one way or another, but he couldn't play the last four minutes of game four, which is a bit of an ominous sign about what he's going to be for the rest of this postseason. Without him, the Celtics are much worse on defense, right? He really, really does a lot of great work for them on defense. Okay, so that means if they're not going to have him, they're going to have to score more points in order to get this done. And Jason Tatum is going to have to be the guy like, hey, man, you know, we need a bucket right now. He's going to have to be the guy to do this. Because, look, you look at that game. The Warriors got that Steph game, okay? They got a very good game out of Klay Thompson. They got that. And the Celtics still should have won. Like, I look at that, and I'm like, yo, you, I don't know how you look at this series and don't say to yourself, you're Boston, we should be up 3-1. Because a lot of what the Warriors got was best-case scenario. And you still could not get that done. Because to me, once it shows that Steph is going to be showing up like that, then that's when Jason Tatum needs to show up like that. Like, okay, that's their guy. Well, I'm our guy. Let's go ahead and figure that out. And to me, the most frustrating thing about this run for the Celtics and looking at it right now, and look, they might wind up winning the championship, right? So I don't want to go too far, be too dramatic. But what I always said for years about the Celtics and the team that Ainge had put together was it's a handful of low spades. And if you get enough spades, you can still clear a lot of books, but they ain't had no trumps. And Jason Tatum seemed to be emerging as a trump, and he looked like he was going to be a trump, like a big card. He's going to play like a joker, and he's still just playing like a face card. And the thing about face card is, yeah, everything goes right. You can win a book with a face card, right? But that joke over, that, that joke over there dropped that deuce. What you got? And Jason Tatum doesn't have a joker. 
It doesn't seem to be that right now. That doesn't seem to be what's in his hand. And I think that may ultimately be the thing that holds the Celtics up. It may be a thing where we look a year, two years, three years down the line, and we look back at this as like the necessary step that they had to take to get to where they were. But a superstar, which is what we had tried to anoint Jason Tatum as being, it ain't about waiting that year. Not with a team as good as that team is, right? Not with a team that plays as well as that team does. Not playing against a team with the obvious weaknesses that the Warriors seem to have, right? And look, shout out to you, Ime Odoka. Apparently, uh, you unplugged the Xbox that they must have been playing at halftime, and your boys actually came out there in the third quarter and looked pretty good. Like They didn't win the quarter necessarily, but they didn't get embarrassed as they had been getting embarrassed before. Way to go. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what them cats is in there doing. Like, hey, man, no phones. Nobody can look at their phones at halftime today, right? Maybe that's what pulled it off. But they managed to get in there, and they figured that out. And I was like, okay, well, if they figure out the third quarter, they're going to win. And Steph was like, yeah, yeah, but I figured out the third quarter and the fourth, too. Isn't that crazy? I got all of this. He made that whole thing go. And so, yeah, we're going to see. And I have absolutely no idea what is going to happen. Best thing I ever did, boy, was not actually make a pick in this series. I was like, I can see the Warriors in six. I can see the Celtics in five. So I just could have got me that five. They could have, right? I ain't got no idea what's going to happen in this series. Y'all ain't got no damn idea what's going to happen in this series. And that might be the best part about this series. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It is the annual Right Time Book Club. This year, the book is King of the World by David Remnick, a fantastic biography of Muhammad Ali, a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Muhammad Ali. Stick with us as we go through the book. Uh, Corey Ertman of The Zone and other boxing properties will be joining us to talk about this later. Also, the author, David Remnick, will be joining us. But first, for Metal Art Media and ESPN, Howard Bryant and Howard, I do have to say this off the top. I know this, you know, may not make me look the best, but it's fine. <laughs> One of the coolest things about the book club this year is that David Remnick knows my name. Man, my eyebrows just went up when you said David was coming on. I love that. Yeah, I dig that. Like that one for me was like, oh, word. Well, that's the winner right there. Why have I not cold pitched him before? That was my <laughs> thought when I saw that. Suddenly a range of opportunities have just opened up for me that I didn't know existed. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? To the book itself, you read it in 98. I want to say I read it for the first time in 2000 is when I got to reading this book. And for those who have not started it yet, we're not exaggerating for you. This is an incredible, just riveting page turner and an incredible narrative turn in telling the story of Ali where you don't feel like you're getting a history lesson as much as you are actually like really reading the story. And the beginning of it gets us to Ali and Kentucky right? His growing up and where that came from. And you know, one thing I've always found interesting about Ali growing up is his is not a hard scrabble tale. He's black middle class. Yes. They were not poor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and honestly, for the neighborhood they lived in and for the city they were in, the people that they dealt with for the most part probably thought they were rich. Yeah. A hundred percent. They thought that they were not, if not, if not rich, they weren't starving. And as Remnick says in the book, one of the things, just to, off the top before we even really jump into this, I think one of the things that makes King of the World one of my favorite books and one of the best Ali books out there is because David Remnick can write his ass off. Yes. That's one of the biggest reasons. I mean, a lot of his sourcing in this is terrific. He gets to talk with Ali. He goes to Michigan and gets to sit with Ali and with Lonnie. But some of his sourcing, obviously, because he wasn't around at that time, some of his sourcing is previous sourcing. 
But boy, he knows how to weave it all together. And one of the things that he did when he was talking about Ali growing up with his brother Rudy and the two parent household and the whole thing, but they were growing up in, in Louisville in the West End was the way he phrased it, which was they weren't white middle class, that Rudy and Cassius were comfortable enough that they never got to see their parents fail which was something that Ali's rivals, he was always better off than his rivals, which allowed him to be so cruel to Joe Frazier, who came from Cottonfield, South Carolina, made, allowed him to be cruel to Floyd Patterson because one, he's lighter skinned and two, he had more economic opportunity. And boy, he was able to turn that on those guys as well. It's really fascinating. Well, I think that's also an interesting part of upbringing. And I don't, recall the book like being so clear about this part but skin color privilege is a huge part of the story of Muhammad Ali right the skin shade privilege that comes from being lighter versus being darker as you know as these guys he was going against because when you think about it Ali was lighter than just about everybody we think about him fighting us other than Oscar Bonavena uh mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. one of these white dudes over there in Europe that I hadn't given no thought to right or Chuck Wepner right like Henry Cooper yeah, Ali was always that guy. And he was also, he recognized that he was special very early on and had one of those contagious personalities where everybody else kind of recognizes it too. Like one thing, I don't think the story of his bike getting stolen and then uh, the white police officer, he goes and wants to get his bike back. And then the guy takes him into the boxing gym. And then, you know, the rest is history. Basically, all these white people in Louisville started contributing to the company that promoted Muhammad Ali Mm -hmm. and everything that came from it. And this wasn't quite like the mob gets their hands on you like happens with most boxers. And they're the ones that get you like these are the folks in Louisville. And I've always found it very striking that these white people took even though there was obvious profit for them. But they took Ali in in a way that we would not associate with the South in the 1950s. Yes, true. If you are one of those people who blankets the South, because there's Birmingham South, then there's Memphis South, and there's Nashville South, and there's Louisville South. And remember, Kentucky's a border state. So there is a bit of paternalism. I mean, one of the folks at the Louisville group was saying, well, one of the reasons we did this was to keep Cassius from those hoodlum jackals, you know, like this was his way out. It's, it's, it's that, you know, that paternalistic, you know, one way out type of thing. And they were going to make money off of him as well. But there was absolutely, he's a good boy. How many times do you see that throughout the book? He's one of the good ones. And therefore there was a benevolence there. However, everybody also knows the rules. It's, it's that great juxtaposition of the South, which I never experienced personally being a New Englander. But even then, there are rules up here too, right? And as long as you stay within those lines, there are going to be white people who are going to be nice to you, especially if at the end of the day, they can also profit from you too. What's funny about hearing you say that is that you are from Boston. And I'm like, yeah, the difference it sounds like between the South and Boston is in the South, the white people might be nice to you. Well, that's right. Well, and the lines <laughs> in Boston is very, very clear. We're not going to tell you the lines. You just have to know them. And we're not going to be nice to anybody about anything, including What's the meanest other? city in America. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Why y'all so mean? Because it's cold and windy and nasty and all of the above. But, you know, the other thing about this, I'm, you know, one of the things that got me about reading this book a second time. And one of the things I love about books, for me, at least, I don't know what kind of book buyer you are. But for me, I remember movies that I saw in the theater. 
I remember how I saw them. It's the same for me with books. I remember which books came out immediately and I went and bought them. This is one of those books. When this book came out in 98, I remember being in San Francisco and going to Borders or Barnes and Noble or whichever one of the big stores that used to be, although Barnes and Noble still around, and immediately buying this book. I didn't even know if I, if I don't remember if I knew it was coming out or if it was one of those things when you just walk in and there it is sitting on the tape. And in working on Ricky, my last book, which is fast, it was, it's been really fascinating going back and looking at this book 25 years later. And the parallels here, like one of the reasons why I wanted to do Ricky, right, was this corrective of how black athletes are written about. And one thing that Remnick does incredibly in this book is he really lays it out. This is a, that, that the media, it's a white industry. And his juxtapositions are his, the rivalry between James Baldwin and Norman Mailer in the early part of the book. It's great stuff because it's not just that you've got these two literary giants who are sitting there covering boxing. It's also the fact that Baldwin is treated like the outsider because he is, he's not a, he wasn't a sports writer, but also that he's black and that he was treated like the interloper and the way that these guys wrote about these black athletes is just so insulting. And I remember reading it in 98, but back then I was 29. And now reading it again at 53, you just get infuriated. I mean, like the passage here when Mailer wrote after the Liston, the Liston-Patterson fight in Esquire, he wrote, the hint of a chuckle of corny old darky laughter cotton field giggles peeped out a moment from his throat. That's Norman Mailer writing about Sonny Liston. In other words, these dudes felt like they could say whatever they wanted about you. And now you start looking at how black athletes are written about. And now you see how much agency black athletes are trying to take over their own narratives. And we all get a little upset about how much of it is propaganda and how much of it is just control. But this is what they were coming up through all the, you know, for the previous 75 years. And so looking at it this way, I sort of say good for the athletes to finally try to have a little bit more agency over how they're portrayed. Corny old darky laughter. Yeah. Like I use this book when I taught a class at Duke called the black athlete in America. And I use a unforgivable blackness by Jack Johnson. Use this uh, Jackie Robinson's autobiography, a bio of Iverson, Halberstam's playing for keeps. And there's another one there right now. I'm just not thinking about. I did that to show for the class was how the portrayal of the black athlete has changed in subtle ways, but has fundamentally ultimately been the same all the way through. Now, Ali's case became very interesting to me because he was a Southerner being evaluated by the white writers of the North, That's many right. of whom, like I think it was Jimmy Cannon's the one that comes up a lot, love Joe Lewis, right? Because what Ali wasn't, was Joe Lewis, right? A lot of people could talk themselves into Joe Lewis and Joe had done a whole lot of things to make sure that he presented himself in a certain way to white people because he was of that particular generation. As the good American. Right. Did the war ads and the war posters and everything else. And, and it was Jimmy Cannon who came up with the line, a credit to his race, the human race. Yep, yep, exactly, right? And so Ali comes in and I think all these people who at least saw themselves as liberal types in the mid-1960s who were writing about him, unlike Joe Lewis, Ali was like, actually, this is how I'm about to do this. That's right. right. 
which was terrifying for them, even in the face of fighting Sonny Liston. Like, it's real interesting when white folks got to pick a side and both sides are black and they can't figure out which one it is. But at least Sonny, all he did was get mad that you called him a hoodlum, right? That's right. Ali's played a completely different game. So I felt like you had, like, the younger writers who kind of liked the idea of him taking down Liston and showing up at his house and all of these crazy things that he did. But the older guys are looking at Ali and being like, yeah, hey, maybe we can have one of these, but hell no, we can't have two. And we certainly can't have this one. This one is actually threatening us. The one thing about Liston, Liston never threatened them. Liston was as wary of the establishment because he was at the mercy of the establishment because of his record and his class and the whole thing. But Ali was like, no, 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 you need me. I mean, that is a fundamental juxtaposition. And Arthur Daly, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning sports writer for the New York Times, actually talked about this once with Jackie Robinson, that one day, and either somewhere early on in in Robinson's career, he referred to Arthur Daly as Arthur. And Arthur Daly, when Jackie Robinson retired in 1956, brought this moment up in one of his columns, one of his farewell columns. And it was fascinating to me that he brought this up because he was surprised that Jackie Robinson didn't call him Mr. In terms of letting everybody know that you may be Jackie Robinson, but I'm still white. And I'm the person that you defer to even though I'm here covering you. And that Arthur Daly would notice this and consider it a civil rights moment that the black man could actually speak to a white man on even terms. They weren't on even terms. Jackie was bigger than you. Right. You know what that reminds me of? You be watching these Modelo commercials where they be out here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Giving honor to the heroes. Mm-hmm. Look, man, it's cats in there. One woman who used to be Popo and she became a DJ. It's a cat that's a barber. I feel like it's some dude that be out here working on low riders. Yep. You know the black people are in them commercials? Dame Lillard. Yeah, Tony Gonzalez, <laughs> Damian Lillard, and Anderson Pack. right? <laughs> All I got to be able to do is soup up this ride. But what I got to do yep. is like be one of the coldest musicians in the world, right? I, exactly. I have to be top of the top. That's, that's the Chris Rock line. I live next to a dentist. A f- dentist. Yes. Yes. And that's that's the idea there. Like, yo, we are on equal footing. And Jackie Robinson's like, so you know I was in the army, right? Okay, cool, <laughs> cool, cool. You know these folks, oh, okay, cool. You know, Oh, but you think me and you, newspaper man, are the same dude. And the truth is, he believes that. And per society, he is correct. And for society, he was correct. And the fact that, they, that he noticed it. And the fact that he considered it to be this surreptitious breaking down of custom. It tells you all you need to know about these industries. And like I was saying, and that I know this is about Remnick, but it remind this is the reason why we do these books now. The way that it's all shifted to be able to be black and to write about black people and to be considered an outsider in writing about your own people is quite a thing. That these writers, because they made the industry, considered themselves to be more authoritative about a black experience they knew nothing about. Right. And Remnick just brings that out. And I was, it really wasn't something he brought out. It was something that I saw, because I haven't really read this book again, like sat down and read it in 25 years. So I, I read it when it came out, but I, you know, I flip through it every now and then over every several years because I love Ali. But to actually sit down and read it paragraph for paragraph, I loved it. And, and I thought the other thing about it too was the way that... Remnick does such a fantastic job 
of bringing in these outside characters because one of the things about a fight is all of the personalities like fights bring all kinds of people together right it's like all the who's ringside who's there and the mailer baldwin stuff i thought was fascinating too because norman mailer was an ass but also that james baldwin was a giant but at that time when you're talking about this in real time he wasn't treated like a giant and yet today he's treated as though he he gets his due now he's been dead since 1987 but at that time when you're reading him or when you're seeing his interactions with these other literary giants there's an otherness about baldwin and there's a cruelty and yet he's the one who sees the humanity in these black men beating the hell out of each other and yet is somehow less than compared to the establishment. And the saddest part about it, of course, James Baldwin wanted the people to love him so bad. That, oh, that is one of the things. I am giving you a homework assignment right now that whenever you do your book club next time, there has got to be, or just one, one of the pods, man, we just have to chop this up one day. Baldwin's nonfiction versus Baldwin's fiction. I mean, you want to talk about an autobiographical study. Yeah. Needing love and needing love from white people. And exposing himself to abject cruelty. One other thing about this book that I really loved as well, Bo, was the way Remnick used secondary sources. Because sometimes you use secondary sources very clumsily. For the people who don't do this for a business, can you explain to them what a secondary source is? Secondary sources is that if you didn't do the interview, if you're not writing first firsthand, you're taking material that appeared, say, in The New Yorker or in Esquire from some secondary source. You are taking somebody else's previous work and you're incorporating it into your work. Most of the times we do this very clumsily because you don't want it to sound like you're plagiarizing, but you also don't want to give the secondary source more credit than you. <laughs> like I'm writing this book, like, and this is what happens sometimes because some of the previous stuff that has been written is really, really good. And you don't necessarily want it to overshadow what you did. So you write it in excerpts, you write it in blocks, you know, said in the 19, you know, in the November 5th, 1962 Esquire. But what Remnick does, he smoothly, so smoothly integrates secondary sources into his narrative without taking credit for it and giving it the dignity that it deserved because that person was writing about it in real time. And the quote that he used from the Gay Talese pieces that Gay Talese did on Floyd Patterson is just phenomenal. What he says when he's talking about after Patterson got slaughtered by Sonny Liston, he says, you must wonder what makes a man do things like this. Well, I wonder too. And the answer is, I don't know. But I think that within me, within every human being, there's a certain weakness. It is a weakness that exposes itself more when you're alone. And I have figured out that part of the reason I do the things that I do and cannot seem to conquer that one word myself is because I am a coward. Yo, that was the hardest. <laughs> I felt like crying. This is a boxer. Everything Floyd Patterson says about himself is like, oh, this oh man, my God. Oh my God, right? Keep it in mind, this is a guy that fought for the heavyweight championship and had America root against him, against That's a right. Swede. That's right, against Johansson. I mean, you're not supposed to be that vulnerable if you're a boxer. It is incredible that that lives inside of you. And even more incredible, that you can admit it, that you can say it out loud, because I'm sure it exists in everybody. And it was like the old George Plimpton line in When We Were Kings, the most, the smallest man in the world is the diminished fighter, is the champion who loses. 
And because suddenly they're not king of the world anymore. They're not the baddest man on earth. Now they're just a person because somebody else is badder than them. But Patterson is such a tragic figure. And then when he fights Ali, Ali humiliates him because he recognized in Patterson the same thing Amiri Baraka saw in Patterson was that for the 1960s, for that time, you love white people too much. You are an Uncle Tom, and I'm going to batter you for being an Uncle Tom. I'm not just going to beat you. I'm going to beat you like I'm your daddy for this reason. Not because I'm a better fighter, but for this reason. Well, it gets back to, again, the people that wanted these white folks to love them, right? That's right. Like, whatever Floyd felt about them is one thing, but his desire for them to love him, that's why he is the flag bearer of, I'm not going to call him Muhammad Ali, I'm going to call him Clay, right? Like, he kept leaning in on all of these things, and all it did was get him destroyed. And the religious part of it as well, that this is somehow that Islam is not a legitimate religion, etc. So he's pandering to that audience as well. And absolutely. And these are the things, all the psychological things that one go into these dramas between these athletes. What also goes into these books, when you're sitting here with a blank slate trying to write these paragraphs, you've got to figure out a way to synthesize all these thoughts. They have to be there. If you get it, you've got a great book. If you miss it, somebody else's great book is going to explain what you couldn't do. And that's why you just love, I mean, that's why when the David Marinuses and the Remnicks and these guys take on subjects, I'm there. I'm completely there for that because you know they know how to do that. Well, the difficulty, or what I think is as impressive as anything about Remnick in this is, again, this is a story of race that I think he handled very deftly, right? Like as anybody, let alone as a white person getting into this world and talking about these things, handled it well without appearing to pander. But also he ran up on what for me, if I was writing this book, would be the trick bag, which is how exactly do I talk about the nation of Islam? Of Islam. Well, that's I am the not thing talking everybody about everybody runs into. Not Islam, the, the nation, nation of Islam. Of Islam. <laughs> not the same thing. And well, what I thought he did brilliantly in that discussion was just run those quotes of Ali trying to explain it to Angelo that's Dundee, right. right? And so it didn't matter at that point. Remnick didn't have to make a statement about the nation of Islam. Just let Muhammad Ali try to explain it. And when well, he tried right. to explain it, he sounded utterly ridiculous. ridiculous. Because there's some fundamentals of the nation and what they had to talk about that we don't talk about that much in the mainstream. But you get to it and you're like, huh, this sounds a lot like Scientology. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it really, really does sound a lot like Scientology. And in fact, Farrakhan has said that, you know, we should be kicking it kind of like Scientology does. But with Ali and where I always find Ali to be so interesting is Ali is so courageous and that's indisputable. But Ali was a soldier and not so much a leader. Right. Like maybe you could say that he was like a sergeant to come lead us privates into mm -hmm. something else. But he was absolutely carrying the water of other people on the basis of a religion that at that time, it didn't really sound like he fully understood. Well, and how could you? But he was also, but the one thing about the nation that I've always sort of admired in ways as well, is that no matter how incongruous it feels, and in some ways all religions are incongruous, but this is especially incongruous, it's always been in service of black people, which is the appeal. And because that's the appeal, of course, Ali's going to go along because Muhammad Ali lived in service of black people. And so for that, I felt like this is one of those things where I'm not going to say you forgive Ali, but you try to follow along. And I think you're right when you were getting at one other thing too before that was about the privilege of 
color, the colorism spectrum. And Ali played that. And this is one of the reasons why black people have to write for black people. There has to be some area of these subjects because I don't think that white writers can do that the same way we can because we know. I mean, think about black humor. When we were all growing up, the first thing you did when you were when you were ripping on somebody, you start capping on somebody. You talk about how black they were, right? That's the first thing. That's the first sign of humor was to criticize how dark-skinned somebody else was. And Ali, one thing that Remnick does in this book, and he does talk about it, and I think it's great, is the history of how black fighters, from Jack Johnson to Joe Lewis, they didn't fight other black fighters. They fought white fighters. And that Ali was essentially lighter-skinned, as you were saying, than everybody else. And he played that. How can you... I think Remnick says, you know, the times when, when, um, when Ali was ridiculing Joe Frazier to bump, pump up the gate and that if Ali was joking, Frazier didn't find it funny. You don't joke about that. It's not a joke. You call a black man a gorilla, especially if another black man calls you a gorilla and then the white people out there. Yucking it up. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you want to hit the core of a person? That's the core of who we are. You know, and in terms of like black humor, I don't think there's another race in this country that zeroes in on looks as much as black humor does. No. That self-hatred, that is some, that is some believing what white people say about you. And the sad irony of Ali is he did. Even while being the face of the most love yourself, love your blackness organization that really has ever had a real mm-hmm. mainstream hold, right? The least compromising in terms of its view of blackness always hated by light-skinned people for whatever it's worth. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to ignore that part. But anyway, all those things. But Ali still, in spite of that contradiction, remained the soldier for blackness in that time because it was about the existence of, right? Like the right to be. That's right. And those brothers that decided to lean in to the mainstream at his expense. I'm going to call you Clay? Come on, Floyd. Saw no way out, though. Didn't see any other way because to lean into Ali would have been to go against where he came from. Right. And of course, he got demolished for it. Right. Now, one last thing, and there was always a point there about how basically when he was Clay, Clay was talking to Clay. That was, you know, that's the way that this was viewed when he would do all the talking and everything else. He's really talking to himself. But Gabe pulled a great quote out of this. Ali at once did not need sports writers, but absolutely made sports writers. Like, can you imagine what it was like to be Bob Lipsight? Or some of those guys in the Ever first talk to time, Lipside about it? Yeah, the first time you meet this dude and be like, yo, he's going to make us all rich. Not only is he going to make us all rich, but I mean, you talk to all those guys. You know, I mean, obviously Dick Shop's no longer with us, but you look at Bob Lipsight, you, you know, Cosell, all those guys, even the famous comedians, even Billy Crystal to another extent as well. They all got bigger because of him, because if he, if he let you into the circle, it was incredible what he could do for you. You know, Larry Merchant, he made careers. If you covered Muhammad Ali and the way that Ali brought you in, and this, it reminds me of talking to Bob Ryan, you know, go talk to, you know, bring Bob Ryan on and Bob will tell, you know, well, you know, the Lakers were playing the Celtics one day and I had lunch with Wilt pregame at the pool. That level of access, <laughs> long gone, <laughs> you know, sitting there in the green room with Ryan one day before sports reporters and he's like, yeah, you know, the Celtics were playing an exhibition game in Worcester and I gave Dave Cowens a ride to the arena. I said, you drove with Dave Cowens from Boston to, from Boston to Worcester? I mean, it's just not there anymore. So to, so to just, 
I mean, this pack of writers who would go up to Ali's training camp and hang out with him the way boxing writers hang. It's just, it's a different time. That is a wild thought. First of all, I'm imagining Dave Cowan's scrunched in the front seat of Bob Ryan's car. <laughs> exactly. Like, how long is that drive? Exactly. Uh, Boston, the Worcester is about 40 minutes. Okay, not terrible, but still, day of Dave Cowan's. Six foot eight and Bob Ryan's 1976 Pacer or whatever he was driving. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, I was like, I'm hoping you were driving a truck or something. I mean, he's six eight. <laughs> but uh, all of this, man, you know, as we get farther in the book, you know, we get more to Islam. We get more into the time that Ali spins away and everything else. Can you think of anything that could potentially be analogous in this day and time? Keeping in mind that Ali's people did not plan a post-fight party because they never considered the possibility that he could win. No, I don't think there is a comp because everything today is business. The thing to remember about these moments back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, maybe up until the early 80s, is that so much of the industry was not considered a business. Maybe game time was a business, but the rest of it was not considered a business. Spring training was not a business in baseball. You could just go have the run of the place, right? You could do these things. Today, everything is filmed. Everything is controlled. Everything is monetized. You're squeezing every drop out of the business of sports. So there's no such thing as a down moment. Everything's got to be authorized. And so to me, the comp is, you know, the comp is something like a business that's not a business yet. Whatever this thing is that we'll be talking about 20 years from now is a mega business. People will be telling stories about it back when it was a startup, when it wasn't really a business yet. And the other thing about this book, last thing that I'll say on this book, Bo, is that one of the things that Remnick does terrifically in this is he is writing a new type of biography for 1998 that this is not a soup to nuts biography. This biography is the time that Muhammad Ali became champion to right around the time when he gets his license uh, revoked. So it's not a Muhammad Ali from 1942 to present book. And I really enjoy those types of biographies where you just take a piece and I'm going to report the heck out of this piece, this time period. And it's a really effective thing. It's a really effective strategy so you can just really bore in. Because sometimes you read a biography and you're like, well, I really want to read more about this one period. I don't need to know the rest of the story. I just need this period. And he does an amazing job. Ali, 1962 to 1970. I actually think the closest thing to the emergence of Ali as it happened, and obviously it doesn't have the social connotations to it. It's Tom Brady, January 2002. Yep. Guy we had not really thought about in that way. And little did we know, we might have been looking at the greatest of all time. Yep. And then as it went, it just built and you're like, actually, huh, this is it. Now, Brady had a relative valley, though his valley included an undefeated regular season. But there's the nine years where they don't win the Super Bowl. And then he rises again as he is older. And then it goes from there. That's really the closest we have to like greatness being directly in front of us. And we just don't think about it that way until you look up and you're like, no, actually, he is that good. Yeah. Well, what's funny is that, but Ali differs from Brady because whereas nobody else had heard of Brady or no one had heard of Ali, Ali had heard of Ali. He was telling everybody from day one, I'm the baddest dude you've ever seen. Trust me on this. And even LeBron, who had been forecast to be everything from day one, he didn't advertise it. Like it wasn't in his personality to advertise the way Ali advertised. I mean, I'm sure LeBron knew it because he's not short of ego. But in Brady's case, Brady knew it. But Brady wasn't advertising either. He was just waiting for his shot. 
And then Mo Lewis made sure he got it. Yeah. I think Ali and LeBron both understood doing it different ways. You got to make people feel good about. That's you, right. Right. They got to feel good about you being in that space. And Ali's braggadocio largely made people feel good. Of course, the haters existed every walk of life, but there was an infectiousness and you wanted to be around it. LeBron understood, man, I got to make all these people around me better. And then they feel good about being around me. And that, I think, is the most interesting thing about both of them. Yeah. And I actually disagree almost 100% with that because I think that the thing that we're missing in the, in the Ali case is the generational piece. They hated true. Ali. That is oh true. Oh, my God. The old guard hated Ali. Right. But I think in terms of dealing with peers and, again, dealing with media that were of a similar space, it was a recognition that he had an energy that people wanted to be around and shared in that energy. That's why you get the openness of him always letting these guys true, around. True. But you had to be 20. You had to be, you had to be, in, your, you had to be in your first iteration of your career if you were an established guy you wanted him to get his ass kicked but if you were 22 23 you're like that's my guy yeah but he knew his room right like he that's knew his right. room that's right and it went from there now with lebron on that it's about him as actual player in terms of those things because mm -hmm. everybody else he ain't really trying to talk to us but the, there's a recognition from both that having that talent does require sharing and that's what right. sharing means can be different for different people well, and it's funny, and that's one of the things that I enjoy about this Ricky book. Ricky didn't care and then realized, oh, I got a lot of fences to mend. I think somebody told him, you know, Brooks Robinson walks around with a Sharpie in his pocket just in case he has to sign an autograph, right? You have to kill him with kindness. Nice matters. That scene in the book where Sonny Liston is in Toot Shore's restaurant, the famous Toot Shore, you know, the famous, sport, famous sports bar in, in, in America. And the owner, Toots, walks over to Liston and Liston's eating a steak and doesn't even look up at him and says, I don't shake hands while I'm eating. You are not going to win the public that way. <laughs> I don't they shake hands when I'm eating. already think you're a hoodlum. <laughs> Especially because you, you did time. <laughs> you did. But hey, that's Howard Bryant, Metal Art Media, ESPN. My man, I greatly appreciate you helping us out with this. No, oh, this was good stuff. You picked a good one. Thank you, man. And remember, June 27th, that's when we'll have our next episode of the Right Time Book Club. Corey Erdman will join us to talk about King of the World by David Remnick. You always got time to catch up. You always got time. If you didn't, you know, get to a part, press pause, come back to us. We will be here. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Gabe Bassane handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Remember, follow The Right Time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. We'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.